0: And just like that, we're back. What is this? Well, first off, this is a Monday morning Late Kick Extra. I'm Josh Pate. So that's one thing that's weird about this. The second is there's no Late Kick Live replay, which you're normally used to seeing in your feed on a Monday morning. Obviously, we've had some programming changes this week. The round ball, the old basketball, it's thrown us for a loop. That's okay. Normalcy will eventually return. So I'm going to remind you what we're doing in just a second. Thank you so much for being here. This will be a Late Kick Extra format, so the normal wall-to-wall Q&A Got some fun things for you this morning. About 90% college football, about 10% other. So as for that format, here's what we're doing. We are doing Late Kick Live on Tuesday night this week. So it's going to be Tuesday night and Thursday night. Obviously, a lot of basketball on Sunday night. And sometimes you have to come to this realization that, wait a second, we're not on traditional over-the-air television. We run digital media college football shows here, which means we can do them whenever we want to. Obviously, you want to stick to a format but using the digital media platforms allow you to have some flexibility. So we're doing Late Kick Live on Tuesday night. Well, that got me to thinking, hmm, that means you're not going to have anything in your podcast feed on Monday morning. And also, we did not get to do a Late Kick Extra last Thursday for reasons that will be detailed before this podcast ends. So why don't we just go ahead and throw one out there on Monday? Let's just throw everyone for a loop. If we're going to have a weird week, let's have a really weird week. Now, why didn't we have one on Thursday? How many of you remember? Raise your hand. I see hands all over the place. Yeah, so I was down in Alabama, storm chasing. I'm not going to lead the podcast with that. Some of you couldn't care less about that. Others of you are fascinated by it. So here's what I think I'll do. I think I'm going to go through the entire deal this morning. We're going to get a lot of college football out of the way. And then at the end of this podcast, if you want to know about the EF1 tornado we captured in beautiful Billingsley, Alabama, and everything that happened the rest of the day, all the more incentive for you to stick around until the end. And one more time, because I had a bunch of you ask about the next Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting. We're looking extra forward to doing that. Our benchmark right now, remember we set a new one for every Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting we're going to do. So right now we're trying to get to 2,000 followers on Instagram, at Late Kick Josh on Instagram. So find me there, follow me there, steal five of your friends' phones, have them follow me, whatever you have to do. I don't judge. In fact, I would think more of you if you did that. So let's dive in this morning. We've got a lot of really, really good stuff that I was supposed to get to last Thursday, but I couldn't, again, for reasons that I will detail a little bit later. Mark is first up on this Monday morning. Mark said, you have all the mood trackers, and they're really fun to talk about, but to what degree do you think the mood of a fan base actually impacts on-field wins and losses, if at all? I think the Florida fans' criticism impacted Marco Wilson in a negative way this year. What do you think? Let's break this down. I want to work in reverse order here, if that's okay with you, Mark listening i'm listening you are not opposing that okay let's do it the marco wilson situation now martin went in much greater detail i had to paraphrase his question for the sake of time he could very well be right i've watched this happen before you never know what a kid's made of mentally and this doesn't just apply to college athletes this happens to pro athletes too one of the best things about sports is fans however one of the worst things about sports is everybody gets a voice with social media everybody gets a voice most of you are fine But there's some losers out there. And if to be clear, if you're ever trash-talking a kid on Twitter, you're a loser. You're just a loser. In fact, I would argue if you're trash-talking anyone, especially trying to be anonymous while you're doing it, but triple especially, if you're trash-talking a college kid or a high school kid or a recruit or anything like that, and you're hiding behind a cloak of anonymity, you're just a loser. I, I hate it for you. There's still time to change. As long as you're still drawing breath, there's still time to change. But as of this very moment, I hate. I hate to inform you. But you are a loser. That's loser status. And so I think, yes, that could play a part, Mark. Now, I don't know specifically about Marco Wilson. Remember, he's the guy who famously threw the shoe in the LSU game, but he had a very up and down season leading to that point. And yeah, Florida fans had been critical of him. They had reason to be. It's not that their concerns or their complaints were invalid. But at the same time, if he saw all that, yeah, he could have potentially been affected by that that to me before i move on that's why some of the best coaching happens between the ears everybody focuses and rightfully so on strength training sports science and all that's well and good and you need that obviously to succeed the bigger faster stronger guy normally wins in this sport normally and so you need that but at the same time what if you have all that from the neck down but from the neck up you're just barbed wire on the inside i'm not talking about marco wilson i'm making a general statement now What if you have no idea how to process things? What if you have no idea how to process criticism? You try and listen to every single voice out there. At that point, your physical abilities and talents are rendered totally irrelevant. You'll never be able to properly harness them because your head is a mess. The sooner in life that you can get someone to teach you the age-old adage that what other people think about you is none of your business, the better off you'll be in sports, in life, on your bowling team at your job, in the accounting office, wherever it is. When you make what other people think about you none of your business, then and only then do you start to set yourself up to maximize on your God-given abilities and potentials and talents. Unfortunately, it doesn't happen a lot. I've talked about this philosophy many, many times about teams, but it also applies to individuals. The inverse actually happens. A lot of folks are taught or led to believe that you need to use doubt, haters, and or disrespect In order to fuel you, in order to motivate you. Can't ever fuel yourself or motivate yourself if no one's out there trash talking you. Well, the reality is, yeah, you can. You sure can. But a lot of people don't think that way. So the problem is, you have radar ears and you're intentionally listening to what everyone says. Well, that does nothing but mess you up. And oh, by the way, it carries with it another inherent pitfall. That strategy also has the other pitfall that if you're ever good enough to get to the top, no one doubts you anymore, no one disrespects you anymore everyone believes in you. Everyone buys into you. Everyone bets on you. And so all that fuel you used to have runs out. And so the blueprint you used to get to be successful is no longer applicable because the fuel that you used to rely on is totally absent. So there's that. That's another pitfall. But in the short term, even before you ever get to the top of anything, if you're using disrespect and doubt and people hating on you, if you're fine, if you're in a good headspace that day, it may not get you, but we're not always in a good headspace. And when you're vulnerable mentally when you're a little fragile emotionally, in other words, when you're in the worst possible moments and then you get that stuff and then you're exposed to it, what kind of irreparable harm could it do to you? I mean, how much could it throw you off course? And you know exactly what I'm talking about. If you haven't experienced this yourself, you've seen people experience this, it's not stuff they recover from in a 12-hour period, is it? Or a 12-week period and sometimes, or a 12-month period. So, Mark, I think you're making a good point here I think there's probably a lot of validity. I don't again, I don't know about Marco Wilson specifically, but in general, I think that may be the case. But as to the more overarching portion of this question, Mark, you asked, to what degree do the does the mood of a fan base impact actual on-field wins and losses? Again, I don't think there's a way to quantify that, but that doesn't mean it's not impacting. I just can't tell you when it's responsible for a win or when it's responsible for a loss. I think that the mood of a fan base, the reason I talk about it a lot number one, it's just entertaining. Uh, number two, it provides an extra layer of connectivity between you guys and the show that we put on every week because I want it to be your show. And therefore, if we're talking about your mood, it's kind of like you looking in a mirror in a lot of ways. We did the Penn State mood tracker the other day. I got a lot of feedback from Penn State fans saying, man, you nailed this. And then I got some feedback from some others saying, uh, it's kind of on the mark, but here are some other things you need to know. And then I got a few of you who said, I don't feel that way at all. I want James Franklin out of here yesterday. I would call that a fringe minority, but yet I got feedback. Feedback is good. I always appreciate the feedback. They're always paying attention in the athletic departments, football programs, and the football buildings. They're always paying attention. Now, why would that be? Why would that be maybe even more so than how the Denver Broncos care about the mood of their fan base? Well, the reason it matters in college football is because there's a portion of the fan base out there that you need even more so than any other portion of that fan base. They're called recruits. You see, you can't separate the 16 and 17-year-old kids out and put them over here in a little pasture and say, you guys hang out over there. I don't want you to listen to anyone who's on the other side of this fence here. No, they're out there. They're amongst everyone else. And so if I'm a junior in high school, I'm not hanging out in my own little bubble over here. I'm walking down the street every day, and I'm listening to what fans have to say. I'm in school, and I'm listening to what fans have to say. I'm on the internet, I'm seeing what fans have to say. And if the mood out there is pretty toxic, and if the mood is overwhelmingly negative about the culture of my program and about the coaching staff inside my program, up to and including me, the head coach, and then I am juxtaposing that with a glowingly positive impression that my rival school has and the mood at the other schools are great and I'm trying to recruit against them, well, you can see very quickly how that can lead to a downhill snowball of fire and terribleness. Not to mention when the fan base's mood disproportionately tilts towards the negative, the checks dry up. And the checks dry up, our resources dry up. Our resources dry up, we dry up. Then again, we probably dried up long before the other two because our dryness probably precipitated that. But it's a good question mark. I don't think there's a stat category or a way to quantify it. I will just tell you the mood of a fan base certainly matters and certainly impacts the football program. It, in some cases, impacts players and coaches. But yes, I think it certainly impacts some decisions that are made in the football program. Caleb is up next. He says, am I crazy to think quarterback might not be as pivotal as it once was? If, as I pose, quarterback play is of a high quality across the country, then what gives teams the real edge? What's the next hot commodity? Now, I should note to you, Caleb gave me a long dissertation about his philosophy on this, his theories on this. And what he was basically saying is he thinks there's more high-level quarterback play spread across the country now than there ever has been at any one point. He made the point that it used to be you had to be someone like Peyton Manning to throw for the kinds of yards that a lot of quarterbacks are these days. So he's saying statistically, there may be a lot of Peyton Manning types out there, again, statistically. But overall, the talent is spread out and more guys are capable of that, which means the overall sport of college football has lent itself to more high level quarterback play. Therefore, quarterback is not as big an edge as it once was. Now, Caleb, I got to take some exception with this. I think quarterback's the most important position in the sport. I think quarterback matters more today than it used to. Let me give you one quick example here just to illustrate the point. A little more than a decade ago, Nick Saban comes to Alabama. He looks around and he establishes his core philosophy at Alabama. It did not center around quarterback, it centered around roster. He was never going to make one position on his team disproportionately crucial to the overall operation. Because the way he looked at it is he said, if I build my team around quarterback, that makes me vulnerable to one injury derailing my entire team and my entire season. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to recruit the best roster, the biggest, most physical, fastest, strongest roster in America. And I'm going to have good quarterback play. I'm going to have guys, you would call them game managers, but it was really just a guy who could navigate the ship he can keep his hands on the wheel not turn it over not run it over in a ditch and then we're just going to overpower people we're going to bludgeon folks we're not going to get up 35 to nothing before halftime we may go into halftime you know up 13 to three but over the course of a game we're going to wear down and lean on people to the point where they can't tolerate that for four quarters well then even nick saban with every option at his disposal he could do it any way he wanted to nick saban looked around and said uh oh game's changing a little bit here." I'm going to have to emphasize quarterback a little bit more whether I want to or not. I'm going to have to. The way Nick Saban was winning national championships, not 8 or 9 games, national championships just a decade ago is totally irrelevant now. If Nick Saban trotted Greg McElroy onto the field against today's Alabama teams with Tua Tonga-Vailoa or Mac Jones or or now Bryce Young, it would be a no contest. Those teams aren't even comparable. They were the best in their eras, but that just goes to show you how much the eras have changed. And so now I look around and I think the misconception here, Caleb, is because it's easier or it seems easier to put up big numbers. That means quarterback as a position is easier to play. I don't think it's easier to play at all. What I think's happened is the quarterback has become a more specialized position. By specialized, I don't mean it's gotten different. I mean, it's gotten more specialized to the degree that There are a lot of circuits out there when you're in high school now solely dedicated to quarterback development. The Elite 11, is just one example out there, but there are many examples that you could take. And all that really does is the average quarterback who's coming off the high school assembly line now is far more developed mentally in many cases and physically in terms of mechanics, in terms of mental processing, in terms of reads, in terms of repetition. Again, both physical and mental that they've seen and taken thousands more than your normal high school kid that used to come out of college. Well, what does that mean? What it means is today's true freshman quarterback is the equivalent of a mid-year sophomore quarterback from 10 years ago and is probably the equivalent of a junior quarterback from 25 years ago. You can just ask them to do more things. That doesn't mean, though, that all of a sudden every quarterback becomes equal and they're all pushed to the middle. The best still stand out. Trevor Lawrence still stands out. Mac Jones, Joe Burrow, they still stand out over the rest. Like when you watch Joe Burrow play in 2019, he didn't look like everyone else. But you know what the other part to that was? You know what the really, really important facet to that was? Their system. Their their surrounding talent didn't look like everyone else either. Nor did Alabama this year. Mac Jones, I'm pretty confident if I put him on North Texas's roster, he's not putting up mirror image numbers to what he put up in Tuscaloosa. So it is about quarterback, Caleb. It's just not only about quarterback. This is not rocket science, obviously surrounding you with guys like Devontae Smith or Jalen Waddle or Najee Harris, an entire brick wall of an offensive line in front of you, all that matters. And then you know what else Alabama had this past year was the best offensive coordinator that I've seen. To be honest with you, I think Steve Sarkeesian's job at Alabama this past year was the best job an offensive coordinator's ever done. Case in point, there was a point in the national championship game against Ohio State where they – over the course of a previous year, leading up to this very moment in time, they had lost not only Tua of not only Jedrick Wills and some talent on the offensive line, but they had lost Jerry Judy, they had lost Henry Ruggs. In the game, the national championship game, they lost Devontae Smith, and Jalen Waddell was a non-factor there in the second half, and really he was only about 60% in the game. Take all that talent away, and they're still operating at virtually the same level they had been a year earlier. That's how good the system was. That's how good the play calling was, the scheme, the design. That's how well they had Ohio State scouted. you got to have all these, Caleb. And so offense in general, quarterback obviously being the trigger man there, but offense in general has gotten to the point where you can make a guy that used to be average in terms of skill set look better just by scheme, but the best still rise. like The cream still rises to the top. So you're not going to find teams with average quarterback play relative to today's standard competing for a national championship. You're not. It's what's held Notre Dame back. It's what held Texas A&M back this year. It's what's held Penn State back. Ask them how easy it is to find elite quarterback play. Ask them if it's just out there growing on every tree. It's not. I know what the perception is because if I were to take Ian Book, it's a perfect example. If I took Ian Book, Notre Dame quarterback, for like the last decade, if I dropped him into the mid-90s. You know what his numbers would look like? If I could take his numbers and package them up and put him in the mid-90s, he'd be a Heisman Trophy contender. We don't ever look at Ian Book these days as a Heisman Trophy contender, but we're not measuring him relative to what used to exist. We're measuring him to, obviously, his current environment. David's up next. He sent this a couple of weeks ago. I meant to get to it. This is a really good question, and he points out something that I did not specify enough. So, good job, David. David says, you mentioned a couple of weeks ago You don't think teams should lose credit for playing a team that was highly ranked at the time, but then went on a downward slide. I completely agree with you. Let me pause. So what David is talking about to remind you, I have a big problem with, let's just put an example out there. I have a big problem if Auburn plays Arkansas early in the year, just pulling some random teams out of the air. Let's say Arkansas is undefeated. Let's say they're 4-0, and let's say everyone has them ranked in the top 15 and Auburn beats them. And so then Arkansas is four 4-1, right? So they drop a couple of spots in the polls, and we wake up on Monday, and I'm listening to people talk, and I hear someone say, Auburn doesn't have a single win over a top 15 team. What are you talking about? They just beat number 13 Arkansas. Well, yeah, but now look, Arkansas is number 17. Why are they number 17? Because they lost to Auburn. That's the entire point here. What was Arkansas when Auburn beat them? But that's not even what angers me the most what angers me the most is let's say let's say playing Auburn takes a real physical toll on Arkansas let's say Auburn knocks a couple of Arkansas's best players out of the game and they never get right the rest of the year and Arkansas limps to an eight and four finish well obviously they probably wouldn't even be a top 25 team at the end of the year and I'd have people telling me you know at the time Auburn got credit for beating an undefeated top 15 team but Arkansas as it turns out they weren't a top 15 team yes they were Yes, they were at that moment. How do you know, how can you be sure the impact that Auburn had on Arkansas wasn't the reason that they went on that decline? So my point here has always been take the value that you're putting on a win, define it that day, the very moment that Auburn beat Arkansas. Define it this day, whatever it's going to be. For me, it would be Auburn just got a win over a top 15 team. That's it. That's the value. You freeze it. Put it in the freezer. You're not pulling it out. You're not thawing it out. Put it in the freezer. It's there. So at the end of the year, I don't care if Arkansas never won another game. For all I know, it's due to the fact that they played Auburn and we took such a physical toll on you or such a mental toll on you. So I'm defining that value that day. Well, then David continues. He says, I agree with that. But my question is, what do you make of the inverse situation? Let's say Texas A&M plays a non-ranked Penn State early in their season and then Penn State turns out to have a strong record down the stretch, should Texas A&M retroactively get more credit for beating Penn State come playoff time? If we should not punish a team for playing a good team early, should we reward them for playing a team that took a while to develop? David, this completes my point, and I'm really glad you brought this up. So to complete my philosophy here, I don't believe that wins should ever devalue as the season goes on. I don't believe they ever should. Because you can never fully know whether me beating you was the impetus for you going on a slide. And I should never be retroactively punished because me beating you did something to you. I should be rewarded for that. So part one of the philosophy is the, the value of your wins should never depreciate over the course of a season. They are what they are. Define them the moment you play the game and that's it. However, as David said, I forgot to give you the second half of this philosophy. I do believe in some instances it is okay to add value to wins or maybe even close losses, but add value to wins later in the season. So let's take that entire scenario. Let's reverse it a little bit. Let's say Auburn plays unranked Arkansas. Let's say they're ranked like 28th or something like that. So they're unranked. And Auburn beats Arkansas, oh, I don't know, 28 to 17. At the time, not only would it not be overly celebrated, you may even look at it and say, ooh, man, Auburn struggled with an inferior, unranked Arkansas team. Okay. And so you define it however you feel like defining it that day. But then let's say we look up six weeks later and Arkansas finished the season 10-2 and and they barely miss out on going to Atlanta because Auburn goes there. Well, then all of a sudden, guess what? Then all of a sudden, I have no problem looking at that game and saying, wait a second, we need to add a little value to that. Because I don't think there's any risk in doing that. There is a ton of risk in depreciating the value of wins. There is no risk in enhancing the value of wins. So I don't have a problem with that, David. I do fully agree. If we're going to change the value of a win you have on your schedule, the only change should be increasing the value of that win. But I'll tell you what, I don't have time to listen to. I can't stand it. You want to see me crow hop and throw a remote into the pool out here in my apartment complex? Have me turn on a TV or turn on a show and listen to someone. Say that a team was overrated, because you know who that someone's going to be. It's going to be someone who has a vote in the AP poll. You know what that means? That means this person was both simultaneously responsible for the team's rating, and then they get to go on TV and say that the team was overrated. Well, whose fault is that? Arkansas doesn't rank themselves, guys. The players don't get handed pamphlets on Monday morning. Say Sam Pittman says, "Here, guys, fill this out. Hand it back to him. We got to." Decide where we're going to rank ourselves. That's not the way rankings happen. Sports writers do that. People who sit in press boxes for a living, they do that. And in one of the very heights of hypocrisy in sports media, the crowd that gets to rank you also gets to bemoan you for being overrated if you don't live up to their perception of what you were supposed to be. There's never a point where anyone in that press box looks and says, boy, that was pretty stupid on my part boy, I shouldn't have ranked them that high. It's not Arkansas's fault. It's my fault. No, there's none of that. There's none of that because, you know, there's really little risk of you being called out. You're the one who writes the columns, not other people about you. And so instead of taking responsibility and admitting you don't really know what you're doing, let's just say they were overrated instead. That I don't have time for. All right, let me fan myself here a little bit. Sweating, it's like 57 degrees outside. Paul's got an extremely good question. It's one that is a deep dive. It is also one that Paul contends, and I agree, would totally solve the problem of late season irrelevance for teams. How do you keep even the bad teams relevant? How do you make someone in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, care about watching 1-10 and Kansas towards the end of the year? Well, Paul will tell you exactly how right after this. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. So Paul lives in England. He sent a lengthy email. I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm going to try and get the most important parts in here. Paul says, I know it would never happen, but hypothetically, what would your thoughts be on an English Premier League style relegation format? Now, what is relegation? You guys have heard of this before. Essentially, it's the way that English Premier League soccer figured a way to make every game count. So what that does is it punishes you for being bad. And what they do is they have different levels. We would call them conferences. We would call them maybe Power 5 and G5. But they take the worst teams in the top level and they bump them out. They say, go down there. Go to the minor leagues, essentially. And they take the best teams from the second tier and they say, come on up. You get rewarded. Now, Paul continues. The fan and media interest here and the team pressure of the matches increases as relegation looms every year. Teams become desperate to win to avoid dropping out of the league. Aside from the title games, the games affecting relegation from the top league and promotion to the top league of 3 teams from the league below, it generates huge interest and attention. Imagine, the bottom team in the Big 12 is relegated to the AAC every season and the best team in the AAC is promoted to take their place. How many games each season would become hugely important? Thanks for the show, Paul. Paul, I would drool at this concept. I'm drooling right now. There's drool all over the place. You're making me drool about the concept. You're right for a million reasons. There's a 99.9% chance this could never happen. That doesn't mean we can't dream. Can you imagine how many problems this would solve? Number one, there's the problem out there of indifference in an athletic department towards a fan base, especially if they know they can take you for granted. For better or for worse, there is no better here. So just for worse, there are athletic departments, athletic directors, and programs out there who think to themselves, you know what, the fans are going to be there either way. There's really not a lot of pressure on us. Yeah, we'd rather win, but nothing's really on the line if we don't win. We're still meeting our bottom line. Budget's still good. Fans are still showing up. The seals are still out there. Oh, oh, oh. They're still clapping because, trust me, uh, that's about the degree to which they think of some of you. And so um, they really don't care. They take you for granted. Well, now you can't afford to do that anymore because now what really matters to you, the money, it dries up. It dries up because you get bumped. And when you get bumped, you don't get to share in the conference revenue anymore. And you go down and you take whatever meat's left on the bone in the AAC. Now that's real pressure. Now they can't afford to take anything for granted anymore. And now they're floating around there at the bottom of the league. And you're right, Paul. This is a way to make, let's just take Kansas because they've been terrible there forever. It would be Kansas versus, I don't know, in any given year, like let's take Baylor. Baylor's not bad right now, but let's just pretend for a second Baylor was bad. And you got a couple of 2-8 and teams playing each other in the latter portion of the season. That's a really, really important game. And think about how much it would erode away at the regionality of the sport because then all of a sudden someone in Orlando, Florida, a UCF fan, would care greatly about what's happening in Kansas because they see a spot they want and they're pulling for not only their team, but they're watching the Big 12 and they're going to see, huh, whose spot are we about to take? Who's going to be without a chair when the music turns off? And then all the while you're trying to take care of your business, here's another thing it would do it would rid me of having to talk about the G5 and the college football playoff at the end of every season because here would be the new goal. The new goal would not be to get the best G5 team in the playoff. The new goal would be the best G5 team is coming to the P5, at which point they can prove themselves playing a relevant enough schedule to qualify them for the playoff conversation later in the year. So at that point, if Houston or Central Florida or someone elevated to the Big 12, And then the next year, or two years or three years later, they went through a Big 12 schedule and finished with one loss, and they were conference champion and whatnot, I'd have no problem putting them in the playoff. It's just, here's what I've seen in the past. I've seen TCU be one of those teams, and then they join a Power 5 conference, and they haven't really sniffed the playoff aside from once. Utah, Ditto, used to be one of those teams. They joined the Pac-12. You don't really hear about Utah in the playoff conversation as much, do you? No, because a funny thing happens when you have to play Power 5 level competition every week. Even if the record is not good, there's a difference in playing a bunch of Colorados and Oregon States. And these may not be teams that jump off the page to you. But the level of athlete is just a little bit better on average week over week than it is in the AAC. And so over the course of a season, there are a few more collisions. You see a few better coaching staffs because those teams can afford to pay more. And in the aggregate, you may end up losing a game or two that you would have edged by and gotten a win in if you were in lower level competition. It's just the way it works. So this would be so great because this would give a pathway. I wouldn't have to listen to a bunch of people saying, well, the G5 has no shot. They would then. The G5 should have a shot. Their shot should be, give them an opportunity to play a relevant enough schedule. And that would come if they played a Power 5 conference schedule. That would be a great thing. So yes, man, I wish it could happen, Paul. I certainly wish it could happen. I am like you and thinking it's unlikely that it would happen for, again, a million reasons. But man, it would be great. Josh is up next. Josh says it was more a realization. I I, I think he was up late on the internet one night doing some research. And he says, hold up. Texas hasn't had a first-round draft pick in six years? Question mark, exclamation mark. So firstly, have I been living on the moon and I just missed the full conversation about this? Or is it just one of the most underspoken facts about college football? Secondly, is anything more damaging to Texas recruiting than that? That's unforgivable for the flagship school in the state of Texas to not have one first-round player in six years. Yeah, Josh, um, it's it's kind of the dead horse thing. People have beat on it and beat on it and beat on it, but it is inexcusable, and you're right. It's been terrible. It's a torpedo to the side, or like six torpedoes to the side of Texas recruiting, so much so that this, this past cycle, the Brockermeyer twins, who were Texas legacies, no less, living in the Fort Worth or Dallas area, somewhere like that, a couple of, well, a five-star tackle and a four-star center whose dad played at Texas, looking for any reason to go to Texas, they left the state. They went to Alabama. Those are the kids you're supposed to be able to just take for granted. You're supposed to be able to write their names in pencil three years away from them even graduating high school. It's just going to be assumed dad played at Texas. They're Texas legacies. They probably grew up with longhorn paraphernalia all over the place, and the bumper stickers on the cars, etc. And, and then they go to Alabama, and the only reason is because of development. They just can't trust Texas to develop them. It's crazy, but it's true. So, yeah, Josh, I look at that and I say, well, that means that the 24-7 sports team talent composite isn't the end-all be-all. Like, Texas recruited okay under Tom Herman, but the problem is the potential of the player, if it wasn't already realized coming out of high school, it certainly wasn't going to get developed much on campus in Austin. That's one of the big things Sark has to change. They're going to be able to recruit okay there. you got to try not to recruit well at Texas. How are you going to develop That's the big question. That's going to be the name of the game there. How are you going to develop? Clinton says, my question has to do with your comment that a G5 team will never make the playoff because of the rigors of scheduling. Do you think there's a possibility, though, for a G5 team to schedule elite out-of-conference matchups and make the playoff? Yes, I do. It's got to be an AAC team, I think. And then it's got to be a situation like Houston and I think 2016 or something like that. They scheduled Oklahoma and beat them early in the season. And so here's what has to happen, Clinton. I think that the profile of the AAC right now, since it's never been higher, if you were to schedule two elite out-of-conference matchups, let's say you scheduled Oklahoma and Miami or something like that, and you beat both those teams and you went undefeated against your conference schedule, I think that team would make the playoff. I know everyone says it's impossible. I don't think it's impossible. And for all I know, I would support the G5 team. I'd have to see how the season played out. A lot of it would be up to how good their conference schedule ended up being. Unfortunately for them, even though I just told you earlier in this podcast, I don't believe in depreciating the value of wins. I'm not on the playoff committee. So unfortunately for them, they would probably need Oklahoma and Miami to keep winning after they beat them, which doesn't always occur. But yeah, I think if all those factors came into play, yeah, I do think a G5 would make the playoff. All right, so let's wrap it up. I was told you I was going to lay out the story for you about last week. So here's what happened. It was a big dynamic system that set up over what is called Dixie Alley, which is essentially Mississippi, Alabama, western Tennessee. It is a very hot spot this time of year. It is a, the most beautiful, violent area on the face of this earth is the southeast during springtime. It Like right now, I'm recording. It is bright sunshine outside. I could open the windows for about the next week, and it wouldn't get cold or hot in here. Birds are chirping. The air is still not too humid, where it feels great. But eventually, it'll get terrible around here again. So it's just storm season. It's tornado season here, if there is a tornado season, which there's not, kids. So we, uh, I'm, I'm on a storm chasing team, for those of you unfamiliar. Have been for about a decade and a half now. And so we, this time of year, are always on guard. Used to work in conjunction with WLTZ down in Columbus, where a lot of people on said team were also employed. Uh, now we just work independent. So we isolated an area several days out. National Weather Service, Storms Prediction Center, did a great job. Their forecast verified. And so we headed down to Montgomery, Demopolis, Jackson, Mississippi. That was going to be our target area. So we started off in Columbus that morning. I drive over to Auburn. I meet up with our buddies, and then we start to head west. And we're thinking to ourselves, we got time. This thing's probably not going to fire. The main event's not going to start until around, oh, two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And so we're driving west, and there's a little traffic jam on 85 that's headed into Montgomery. And so as we're sitting in the traffic jam, a funny thing happens. A tornado warning goes off. We've got warnings for all counties in the state that we're in. So a warning goes off, and we say, hold up, what? And we become so distracted and so convinced that the main event wasn't going to be until later in the afternoon. We didn't realize there had been some supercells that had already fired southwest of Selma, Alabama, and areas like that. So we had to get out of the traffic jam because we realized tornado-worn storms had already popped. So we get off and we uh, get around the traffic jam. We head into Montgomery, and tornado warning is going to be very close to Billingsley, Alabama. There's a cell that we can intercept probably around Billingsley. And so at this point, it's like in the movie Twister. You turn up Van Halen as loud as you can, and you drive as fast as you can because it is a race against the clock. All these storms, while they weren't racing at 60 miles an hour like they sometimes are down here, they're moving at a pretty good clip. So we have a target area. We're using an app called Radar Scope. We have the premium version of that app. It is beautiful. It gives you everything from super res, velocity, correlation, coefficient. It gives you everything that you need in the field. It is probably what spared my life March 3rd of 2019 in Beauregard, Alabama, when it got us out of the way of what ended up being an EF4 tornado. So we're headed towards U.S. 82. It's just, it's in Billingsley. It's in Autauga County. It's where O.J. Howard was from, for you Alabama fans. And we get there, and it is a situation where we're probably there about three or four minutes ahead of when that cell is going to cross. Now, it has had a confirmed tornado on the ground, but we can't tell if it's still on the ground. We're looking for what is called a tour signature on radar. And we're kind of seeing one, kind of not seeing one. So there we are. We're sitting on U.S. 82. And again, you guys... If you want to see the video, it's on Twitter. It is from about four days ago. Uh, what day was this? The 17th of March. And so there we are. We're sitting there. We know we got about two or three minutes to spare. So we get set up at a good angle. And there she goes. She crosses right in front of us really early in the day. This was at one twenty-three p.m. We thought our action would be several hours after that. And so we get a tornado. This is the first tornado I've seen in person since that Beauregard tornado, which was, again, a monster. It was nine-tenths of a mile wide for reference. It was an EF4. It was March 3rd of 2019. There were 23 fatalities that day. There were none on this day. Thank the Lord. And so we spotted the tornado, got some excellent footage of it. Let me give you a little piece of advice. Don't scream into the phone and turn it landscape when you're filming. Just two points of emphasis I want you to focus on. got to have your mind right ahead of time. You don't want to be the dude screaming expletives that they have to beep out when you're on national network news. So we got good footage of it. So then you kick into your procedure mode. You got a checklist in your mind. Anytime this happens, this has been my sixth tornado that I've been able to spot. What you do is, number one, you got to get your footage sent in. Number two, you have got to go into search and rescue mode. So we come in behind it. We had to make sure it was on the ground. Yes, we confirm it was on the ground. There's damage. There's obviously tornado signature damage on the ground. We have to make sure search and rescue mode is not necessary. Sometimes it is. This didn't hit any houses in our area. We couldn't get down a lot of roads. They were impassable. So you put the gloves away. You're not going to have to get out and go help people get out from under debris. Then a crazy thing happened. So after you've seen a tornado, your mind goes somewhere. I don't know what happens, but I'm telling you, it takes you a while to regain your bearings about yourself. You have questions like, where am I? You know, what road are we on? Normally stuff you would be completely dialed in on you just your, your head is swimming. It's kind of like if you just got off a roller coaster and then you're walking around. It just takes a second. You may have to go sit down on a bench for a second. It's not necessarily that you're dizzy. You're just kind of, whoa, man, that was a lot. And so you go park at a gas station, <laughs> stand up, stretch your legs, do whatever. But a lot of times you're still chasing that cell. Well, on this day, we couldn't chase it because we had, I think, four more active tornado warnings to the southwest. Now, this ended up being the only tornado we actually got. We actually documented that day. But there were two other instances where we get over into Selma, Alabama, which for some reason is where I always tend to end up. I end up in Selma, Alabama, every chase we have in the state of Alabama. The Edmund Pettus Bridge, is one of the most famous landmarks of the American civil rights era. I can tell you it's not famous for tornado chasing, but I cannot tell you how many times I've been across that thing, chasing a tornado. I got a footage on my phone right now of us having to pull a sharp U-turn because we were way too close to a cell that had ended up dropping just a few miles later, another EF1 tornado. But let me tell you what's funny. So as we're doing all this, congruent to us completing our chase for the day, anytime you put footage out, a lot of network news organizations are going to want it. So I worked in the business. I worked in the news industry. I know how this operates. So what I do, because I'm not necessarily looking to make money off that footage, is I just put it out there. And then in a follow-up tweet, I say, Any news organization out there is free to use this with proper attribution. That just means you can use the footage. Make sure you give my name. That's it. That's all I wanted. Well, a lot of people aren't even looking at the second tweet. So we end up getting inundated. And this is not the first time this has happened. But we end up getting inundated with people from all kinds of newsrooms all across the country. ABC News, CBS News, Fox News, CNN, all the major broadcast and cable outlets. But that's not what stood out. What stood out is... The Weather Channel tried to get your boy to come on and do a live hit, and I had to turn him down. Ten-year-old Josh would have slapped modern-day Josh in the face if he ever knew that modern-day Josh was going to have to turn down a live hit on the Weather Channel. Uh, But I had to because we were very busy. But that's not what stood out the most either. What stood out the most is I look down at my phone, and there is a producer from Al Jazeera Television asking for my footage. Now, I want you to just pause. I grew up in rural west-central Georgia. Okay? My only perception of what Al Jazeera is is probably not too unlike your perception of what Al Jazeera is. Now, in reality, it's a major news-gathering organization in the Middle East. But that's probably not what your perception of it has been growing up. So to look down at my phone, again, growing up in Fortson, Georgia, and to see the fine folks over at Al Jazeera say, Yo, JP, can we use your footage? It was just a lot to process, sitting in the Whataburger parking lot in Clanton, Alabama. It was a lot to process. But that was our story that day. It was a fun day. Fortunately, no fatalities. And we had a ton of tornadoes out there. So we ended up driving, who knows, like six or 700 miles. Never got to Mississippi. We thought for all the world would be in Mississippi, but we did not get over there. We stayed in Alabama the whole day. So that was a really, really fun time. A lot of you were hitting me up and asking me how it was going. So, and, And a lot of you just wanted to make sure I was still alive. So I appreciate it. So I know some of you are fascinated by that. If you're not, you tuned out 10 minutes ago, and that's fine, too. For Producer Jordan, I'm Josh Pate. Thanks so much for listening. Remember, we got Late Kick Live coming up Tuesday night, so you'll have a feed of that in your podcast feed Wednesday morning. We'll have a normal edition of Late Kick Extra Thursday morning. We need 2,000 followers on Instagram in order to put in motion the next Late Kick Show Owners Association meeting at Late Kick Josh. At Late Kick Josh. Again, that's all I got for you this morning. Thanks for listening. Have a great day, and God bless.